0: Welcome to the Blue Security Podcast, a weekly podcast for information security defenders, where we bring you discussions on best practices, tools and implementation for enterprise security. Now here are your hosts for today's show, Andy Jaw and Adam Brewer.
1: Welcome to another episode of the Blue Security Podcast. I'm Andy, your host. I'm Adam, your co-host. So this week, I want to talk about a few things that have come to mind. The first thing is there was a video that was published on YouTube about how to bypass BitLocker. And the video is actually really good and we'll link it in the show notes. And I do highly recommend that you go and watch it because it talks about how BitLocker works, a lot about the physical TPM chip, how that communicates and releases the BitLocker keys and the TPM bus and all of that and it shows a hacker, a gentleman who is a white hat hacker, who creates a device to sniff the keys on the TPM bus and then decrypting the keys and then using that to decrypt the drive and accessing the files, even though the drive was encrypted with BitLocker. And if you go back a couple of years, We actually talked about this specific attack back in October of 2021 because there was an article published with this specific attack chain that was novel at the time. At the time, this was brand new, and that was published in July of 2021. There was a series of researchers who used this attack and bypassed BitLocker or was able to decrypt a drive that was encrypted with BitLocker. So this attack isn't anything new. It has been around for a couple of years. I think mainly because of the speed and also YouTube going viral and then a news article being released. It is now again being talked about. But one of the things that has changed since then is the TPM chip. Now, back in the day, the TPM has always been a physical chip that was separate from the cpu and in order to communicate between the processor and the tpm chip there is a physical bus and so that is what's being sniffed you can attach physical probes to the bus sniff out the keys and then decrypt them since then there have been improvements in tpm one of the things that was announced back in 2020 so Many years ago, there was a thing called the Pluton processor design. That may be something that you remember. It's from Microsoft. But the idea was to integrate the TPM into the processor, into the silicon itself, so that there is no bus to sniff. It's impossible. And that is a reality today. There are Qualcomm chips, Intel chips, AMD chips with the TPM physically embedded in the chip. Not everything is like that. But those chips are called FTPM or firmware TPM. And so th- that is a thing that is available if that is a security need. There are still physical TPM chips and CPUs. That is still a thing as well. So one of the things that has come out of since then, because 2021 was a while ago when we realized this, was that if you have physical access to the device a large amount of time and the capability, the skill, To sniff out encryption keys on a bus, then yes, you're going to be able to defeat BitLocker. There are a few things that you can do if this is a risk that you want to mitigate. And we talked about it two years ago. It's the same mitigation. And it's also in the BitLocker countermeasures official documentation on the Learn site for Microsoft, which is you can enable a pre-boot PIN. And that can be done through your BIOS or through Group Policy. You can also disable power management uh, standby or hibernate because when the device goes to hibernation or standby, the drive stays unencrypted. And that is because the decryption keys for BitLocker are released only upon boot. Which, by the way, as a tangent, if you are an Intune uh, admin and you've configured compliance uh, policies for your devices, and one of them, which is must be using BitLocker, which is different than the drive must be encrypted, if your compliance profile policy says must be using BitLocker and you push out the compliance policy, if your user's devices do not reboot, then they will actually, after a certain period of time, say that they are non-compliant which happens quite a bit because a lot of users rarely actually shut down their computers and reboot unless they're they have to and so they'll show up as non-compliant because that compliance profile actually only measures it when the device starts and those bitlocker keys get released and it knows that it's using bitlocker so that's a side tangent but important to know because If, again, this is something that you want to mitigate, then you'll want to disable um, Hibernate or Standby. So all in all, there are mitigations for this. It's a known, I wouldn't call it a vulnerability because it is essentially a design flaw of TPM and how it works because TPM is a physical chip. It requires a physical bus that can be sniffed if you have the right probes. And the encryption key is sent in the clear. You still have to use that key somehow to decrypt the information, which is, again, not easy. It's not something that I know how to do. If you watch the the video, the guy is obviously very skilled, and it's not something that just regular Joe Schmo can do. So if they have the skill, if they have the time, if they have physical access, yes, this is something that's going to happen. But there are ways to mitigate against this If you believe this is a risk for your company.
0: Interesting how videos can come out that become quote unquote viral or gain a lot of traction. And one thing to keep in mind, and and it's not the case here, by the way, obviously very well researched, well produced, well thought out video. But I remember back when Bendgate first occurred with the, I think iPhone six. And it was, as it turns out, a thin slab of aluminum can be bent. That's a shocker for any of you who've never dealt with anything aluminum before, but believe it or not, aluminum is a relatively soft metal. And so people would like have their hands shaking. They were trying to bend it so hard. And yes, their iPhone's bent and it went viral on YouTube. Now, you know what happened to those people who posted those first videos? They monetized a small fortune from YouTube. Uh, So in some ways, and again, not pointing at this video, but just something to think about in the future is use our critical thinking skills around media consumption and evaluating media and sources of media and the motivations for posting different media or blog posts or New York Times articles, or Wall Street Journal articles or whatever. um, And when we evaluate, you know, reporting like this, because sometimes uh, cybersecurity reporting in particular can be a little bit hyperbolic to say the least, this guy is falling an awful lot. And that's where we need to really slow down and think about what we're reading and what the motivations are of those being interviewed or those doing the reporting or those posting the video or whatever. Uh, that said, this is a really good walkthrough of what Andy said. It's even in the Microsoft documentation that this is a known, you know, Andy, you were trying to find the way to describe it. I'd say a design limitation, when you have a, a disparate chip, there has to be some sort of communication channel between that and any other um, chipset. So, you know, obviously concerning, I I would be shocked if there were information security professionals out there who walked around with the perception that I could give a Windows PC to a, um, an enemy, you know, a malicious actor, a threat actor, whomever, and there's no way they could break into it if you are walking around with that perception i um obviously that's the goal that's the north star but i think reality is with enough skill and enough time and enough talent uh if you have physical access you will eventually gain access now i always think in terms of cybersecurity of how do we mitigate the risks right so number one thing and uh, you know i'll call back before we even get into mitigating risks this is my favorite callback to that XKCD comic about encrypting your device with like a million bit encryption. And their whole idea is in the first panel, they're going to build some multi-million dollar, a cracking solution to crack the, the, the encryption keys. And then in the second one, it's hey, drug him and hit him with this five dollar wrench until he tells us the password, right? So like all the security in the world from a physical or or software or logical security perspective can be defeated by human elements, of course. And that is tends to be the greatest risk factor anyways, people putting a post-it note on their PC because they can't remember their password and you make them rotate it every 90 days or whatever. So when I think about how do we mitigate this, you know this is there. It's a thing. I think it's very unlikely, unprobabilistic in the real world. There are many things you can do to, inc- to protect against more likely risks of compromise, like moving to Windows Low for business in the first place because it you know, reduces the risk of users writing their passwords on a post-it because they can use their face or their fingerprint or a memorable pin that they don't get forced to change all the time because the pin is tied to the hardware. I think about things like moving to a model in which you enable cloud first principles, like using OneDrive for business with files on demand so that I am not actually storing a lot of files local to this PC at all. Very few, Um, only the ones I'm actively working on. If I'm not actively working on them, files on demand will release the file from the local hard drive. And it's just a stub. The copy is actually in the cloud. So that reduces my risk because I'm actually storing less stuff on the drive. That's interesting in the first place. That's a great place to be. Moving to the new Outlook, which doesn't have a massive cache of emails sitting on your local device. The new Outlook is a mostly online only kind of model with some offline capabilities coming soon, but that really gets rid of your risk of having a ton of emails cached local to your device. So there's another thing you could do. Um, I think of putting all those pieces together. Oh, I, I know the other one I was trying to think of information protection. If you start to classify, label, and protect your documents, If your most sensitive files are labeled and classified and protected, then there's encryption, a second layer of encryption on top of BitLocker encryption for those most sensitive documents. And that way, even if someone can compromise BitLocker, if they don't have the user credentials or can't satisfy the conditional access policy, or the user account has been disabled, then they can't use or open those highly confidential or confidential files, even if they are stored locally to the device. So there's really ways and they're common sense ways you can mitigate this risk while at the same time delivering a better user experience. So as opposed to this keeping you up at night, although it's interesting and it's a cool hack and we love this sort of stuff, this mission impossible type hacking stuff, in reality, the mitigation steps are relatively boring. Use OneDrive, use Windows Hello for business, deploy information protection, and you have significantly mitigated the risk because you have very few files on the device if they are on there, they're protected and you don't have easy uh, human or social engineering ways to break into the device anyway, which would you know eliminate the need to go through all this work in the first place. So that's what I think about when stuff like this pops up.
1: I love the call out for information protection because that is something I actually didn't think about when I was writing up the, the notes to this show. And that absolutely, I think data protection and data security is such a big topic today that if you're doing that already, that is absolutely a mitigation because now you have to involve identity compromise rather than just physical compromise of the device, which, like you mentioned, Adam, can have other conditions to satisfy. Must be on a managed device, must be on uh, MFA or fish-resistant MFA, something like that. Whereas these people are not really like logging into the os and accessing the files they're just decrypting the drive hooking it up to some you know drive reader and then transferring the files that way but then when you transfer the files those are individually encrypted using the microsoft information protection or whatever information protection stack that you have mm-hmm. and if you're using dlp rules that can automatically look for things and label them then you're really a step ahead of most orgs. I think a lot of the orgs that I talk to today, they're really starting to take data security and data protection seriously. Agreed. And it is a big deal. It's a big project. And I think that's what scared a lot of people because it would take a lot of time. I, I talked to an org and they literally asked me, how long do you think an information protection project would take? And I said, I mean, honestly, it can take a year you know, from start to finish for a large organization because you have to work with other cross functions within your org, legal, HR, because as information security or, you know, cybersecurity practitioners, you don't actually know what is the most important data for HR. You don't know what is the most important data that needs to be secure for legal. You know, they have to tell you. And then you have the tools, obviously, to scope that. But Yeah. I love this call out for information protection because that is something that's super important. People should start on it. If you haven't done it, we've talked about that before, but that is absolutely mitigation for this.
0: Yeah. Just in general, anything you can do to make that PC like less of this offline repository of stuff is a good thing. And so a lot of our models used to be based around, Hey, let's cache your whole outlook mailbox, or at least the last year of it locally in a PST file. That's not encrypted in, in another layer of encryption. I mean, that's that's a huge attractive target. Let's um, just copy files from our H drive and store them locally so we can work on them. And then we'll put them back on our H drive when we're on the network again. Like, let's just move to a OneDrive model where we don't have to think about that. And let's do files on demand so we're only copying files to the drive that we're actively working on. And if we can make some of those changes too, like we're just reducing the attack surface and you combine that with the information protection, and it's not hard to imagine a state where you get to where there's almost nothing of interest on that device's drive in the first place. And what is there has that second layer of protection. And now it's not like who cares if we have BitLocker or not, because obviously you should still do it because there's basically no performance impact from it, but it's only one layer in a set of layered security, defense in depth, which we always talk about. And that is a, like, not a hard state to achieve, like what I just described. And there's other benefits that come with it.
1: Yeah. And I've talked about this concept of when you lose a device, mm-hmm. are you afraid to lose your devices today? Like if I actually lost any one of my pcs i i could care less because there's literally no information on there while i do have OneDrive and everything all that stuff is backed up it can be restored nothing is really stored locally like maybe i think the biggest thing that i would fear is my downloads folder Mm -hmm. getting wiped because you know we use that as a temporary repository
0: but most of the time it's stuff that you don't care about to begin with Right. If I really care about it, I will drag it to my OneDrive. But yeah, I mean, and that, that's we did the whole show on operational excellence based on that Swift on security tweet. And that's another way to deliver the ability to recover from ransomware uh, as well as just like lost PCs, all sorts of things. It, it, it has the benefits there, too, not just from a, a cybersecurity perspective, but from a usability operational excellence perspective, too. That's all great stuff. Hopefully, it's something that you picked up there that will help you
1: out. So the last thing I want to talk about is this week, the U.S. Air Force announced a major reorg. And since I'm an Air Force veteran, I stay up on the news, and I was reading about this. And this is one of the most significant reorganizations since the end of the Cold War. There were a lot of changes. One of the changes that I found that was super interesting is Air Force Cyber is moving from under Air Combat Command, and it's getting elevated to its own service component command. Air Combat Command is basically all of the fighter jets today. They have all the fighters and bombers in that. And Air Force Cyber used to be under Air Force Space Command, which kind of broke off and became Space Force. So that's a little history for you but the way that the air force used to be organized was they had air force combat command or acc they had air mobility command which is all the um all the transport cargo planes and they had you know other major commands that all report to the chief of staff of the air force and they're changing it so that each individual component will have components of say like a wing will have some fighter jets they'll have some uh cargo planes and so on and so forth, rather than being its own separate major command. So each individual unit will be a little bit more self-sustaining. This is interesting to me because as I was reading this, having Air Force cyber move into its own service level command and directly reporting to the Air Force chief of staff is the civilian equivalent of say moving, your cyber org your ciso from under say cio into its own you know reporting structure directly to the ceo similar to how microsoft has our security org like with charlie bell security engineering everything that comes to security reports through charlie bell charlie bell reports directly to satya nadella and to me that Is significant because it is a symbolic representation of how important cybersecurity is to your organization. The government, I think, has been really doing a forward thinking job when it comes to cyber defense. CISA has been really knocking it out of the park lately. Jen Easterly, who leads that organization, is phenomenal. And The Air Force is following suit and reorging their cyber command to a major command here. And additionally, now Air Force Cyber gets its daily marching orders from US Cyber Command, which is like all of our cyber forces for not only the Air Force and military, like Army, Navy, Marines, but also like FBI, CIA, all the different three-letter organizations that's all under U.S. Cyber Command. So this gives it more joint capabilities, more autonomy when it comes to training and budget. And so I think this is a good representation that at least the Air Force and I think the other organizations in the government will follow suit, how important cyber defense is to our government, which got me thinking about where does your cyber org sit in your organization and how important is it to your org if it's not directly reporting to the ceo you know i think a, for a long time the CISO wasn't able to really play at the table with all the other c-suite you know it's like a red-headed stepchild essentially like oh we added another c-suite we don't really think it's that important it's a budget sink and so i think if you look at your org you know where cyber sits cyber security sits, can really dictate how important it is you know where it is in the priority of your ceo what do you think adam
0: so I'm a civilian, not former military like Andy. So, uh, it's interesting hearing about the, the organization and the structure and how it used to be organized and how it is now. Um, certainly we were very appreciative of our military and, and the air force is a critical component of that to protect the United States and its people and its interests and all that that entails. And, one thing that's interesting is we had an internal call and I'm not going to refu- reveal anything like sensitive or internal, but we had uh, Satya Nadella on and he was talking a little bit, just kind of holding court, doing some Q and a from some internal employee conversation. And someone had asked him about the midnight blizzard security incident that Microsoft had um, experienced a, a few weeks ago now. And one of his responses was, one of the ways he responded was first talking about how Microsoft president Brad Smith. And if you've never heard Brad Smith talk, he's great. I wish he'd run for president. He'd be amazing. Uh, Brad Smith talks a lot about having like a digital Geneva convention for the modern world where we need to establish like what isn't, isn't okay in terms of the, the conflict between nation states. Um, because I think it would be pretty clear that if a foreign adversary, and we don't need to name names, uh, were to launch a cruise missile and hit a Microsoft data center, that would be considered essentially an act of war uh, from that nation state against the United States. Um, That would not go over well, to say the least. However, as of today, we have nation states doing cyber attacks on companies like Microsoft, where these are well-resourced, well-financed, well-trained groups that are acting as arms of nation states, foreign adversaries, and they attacked Microsoft. Um, And they're attacking many companies throughout the United States. Midnight Blizzard in particular has been prolific in attacking America's great companies. And so while though it's not an attack on physical property, It is an attack on cyber property and intellectual property. And for whatever reason, that doesn't carry the same gravitas. But you are seeing here that our United States Air Force has elevated the role of its cyber operations to be a major component of its overall organization. And that tells me that the Air Force does understand, and and this is not hyperbole at this point that some of the next, you know, fronts of warfare will be in the cyber domain. And I agree with you, Andy, I think, uh, from, from Jenner Easterly down from CISA to the military and everywhere in between, I've been very pleased with the level of sophistication and growth we've seen over the course of the Biden administration here in really deepening America's, uh, cyber defense capabilities, and leveraging the power for good in a lot of ways. And that has been really, really positive. So I'm heartened to see this because as Andy and I both work for Microsoft, not obviously directly impacted, but indirectly impacted by a very serious nation state security incident. Um, we need to continue to build our defenses and, and having our military be a huge part of that is really important because There's a lot of talented people, a lot of really smart people there that can help all of us um, protect our country and its interests better. So this is encouraging to see for sure.
1: One of the conferences that I went to last year was called the Experts Conference. It's hosted by Quest. Phenomenal conference if you're interested in Microsoft technology in general. Tons of MVPs that speak there. A lot of... Microsoft product group folks. One of the keynote speakers was this gentleman named Alexander Crowther, who is a strategist and cyber policy specialist, international affairs. And he talked about geopolitical tensions. And the two names that he mentioned, and I will drop names because it was part of his presentation, <laughs> was China and Russia. Those are obviously the two obviously. big ones yep. in what the Air Force refers to as the great power you know, struggle here. And what he said is that regardless of whether we believe that we're at war, they believe that they're at war with us. 100% that they believe they're at war with us. And cyber and information warfare are perfect tools to basically operate below the threshold of a conventional war where it won't trigger anything that you know, like you mentioned, where if they launched a missile at a data center, yes, obviously that's that's war. But you you know do a DDoS, you know now all of a sudden you know bombard it with um, packets instead of like a missile. Now it's not a declaration of war. And so we talked about these four different elements of national power: military, embassies, economic, and technology. And the one. That China and Russia are focused on right now is economic because the West has a ton of economic power. We generate about 50% of the global global GDP. China has really honed their attacks to target our economy. The US is their prime target. Um, And if you have money as a company, if you have intellectual property that is monetizable, China and Russia are going to come after it. And he mentioned that Iran and North Korea are kind of secondary, but China and Russia are the big ones. And so, like you said, Adam, it's kind of unheard of you know, back in the day that a private company would get attacked by a nation state, but not so today because Microsoft has a lot of intellectual property. We have stuff that is worth a lot of money. And so they're going to try to attack it, to try to gain access and make money because money is kind of the new standard with money that you can do anything, you know, from a global standpoint. And so I thought that was super interesting. This whole conversation, again, was just kind of spurred about, you know, just thinking about where, and especially organizations that I've been in in the past, where is your cyber org and how important is it? Do they have their own budget? Do they have their own training? Do they have their own leader within your organization that can advocate for cyber initiatives, cybersecurity um, policies, changes. What's the you know, title like of that leader? That. Correct. right? And so do they have the ear of the CEO? Do they have the ear of the board? Do they have influence? Are they a business decision maker? Or do they report to someone else? Right? And so I think that is something that does need to change. The government here is pushing that change forward. I think... Further than any uh, uh, many of the private companies that I talk to, at least, for Microsoft customers, a lot of them don't have a CISO that directly reports to a CEO, and so I just thought it was a really interesting thought that I think everyone needs to go through this thought process, um, especially if there are any cyber leaders on that listen to this call. Um, you know, try to. I don't, I don't know how you can really advocate for an org change like that, but that's something that I think does need to change in the civilian world if you're going to really take cybersecurity more seriously.
0: Yeah, I, I, you said it all. It, cybersecurity is not just a function of information technology. Cybersecurity is a function of a organization, period. And it, it should be organized that way. And here we have the United States Air Force leading by example.
1: Well, that's our show for this week. Thanks for watching and listening as always. We'll have all the links to the articles and the videos that we use to talk about in this episode in the show notes, as well as our contact information. If you have any questions or topics you want us to talk about in the future. Thanks. We'll talk to you guys next week.